Welcome to Building Tomorrow, a show about what the future might look like if we embrace innovation and pursue freedom. I'm your host, Paul Matsko. If you're anything like me, you've been overwhelmed by the rapidity with which the COVID-19 virus and our societal responses to it have transformed daily life in almost unprecedented ways all around the globe. But now that we're a few weeks into a world of shelter-at-home policies, social distancing, and economic chaos, I thought it was time to take stock of the technological ramifications of this crisis. After all, COVID-19 is a technological problem, as well as a medical and economic problem. That began with the question of testing for the virus. As soon as the virus was discovered, Chinese scientists mapped its genome, and global researchers started developing ways of testing for its presence. Countries that adopted testing early and often, like South Korea, have done much better than countries that have not, like the United States. So today we're going to talk about why our testing technology in the U.S. lagged so far behind that of other countries. But I don't want to just fixate on what went wrong. I've also been pleasantly surprised at what has gone right during this crisis, as technological substitutes like Netflix, teleconferencing, social media, and the like have made it easier for us to quarantine ourselves. So I asked an up-and-coming technologist whom I greatly respect to join me on the show today. Alex Stapp is the Director of Technology Policy at the Progressive Policy Institute, and I'll add a great Twitter follow. Welcome to the show, Alec. Thanks for having me, Paul. Now, we're both you know, policy tech wonk types, and I'll admit that when COVID-19, when the pandemic first really started to grab uh, my attention and the public's attention in the U.S., I was not thinking about it as a tech person at first, but it surprised me in a number of ways. What, what surprised you about how the tech sector has responded to COVID-19? Yeah, I kind of actually had the same response as you did. Uh, I remember I first started hearing about it in early January. So I think that was likely um, far ahead of the general uh, American public because I, on Twitter, some of the people you might fo- also follow in the tech industry, like Balaji Srinivasan, who's um, an investor and entrepreneur in Silicon Valley and also has a, a biotech background. He was very early on tracking this and, and kept saying repeatedly, over the course of January, like, hey, keep an eye on this. This could be really bad. We'll see as it how China handles this this new virus, um, and we'll see if it spreads worldwide. But like, we should definitely be worried about this. And then Scott Gottlieb, who's recently the FDA commissioner under the Trump administration, but he resigned last year, and now he's a fellow at AEI. Uh, he was also very early on saying this is something we should be worried about and preparing for. And so I was noting that stuff, but. When I was having discussions at the office about about this potential virus and the, the crisis that could come come with it, I didn't think I had much to add. And I honestly, I told my boss, I said, you know, this is a, a tail risk type event. Um, I'm not really worried about it personally right now. This is in January, um, but I'll keep an eye on it. Uh, and it really did kind of explode, obviously, in February and, and now into March. And and as we've seen it explode, I think we've really seen the benefits of technology in responding to this this crisis, allowing. Many, especially um, white-collar professionals, to work from home and still accomplish a lot of their daily work using remote tools. Uh, I think that's uh, really has the technology industry to thank for the the rise of um, enterprise software over the last decade. And so, really, it would have been much harder to cope with this if we didn't have a lot of the technological tools that we do today. I suppose, uh, to some extent, I'm primed, even as someone who uh, has an interest, a professional interest in tech innovation, to discount, I don't mean that uh, disregard, but discount to, to lower my um, expectations when it comes to the you know tech sector 
folks as they speak about areas that aren't about tech. It's a sector of folks who are maybe maybe a little more inclined to think that their expertise in one domain means that they're going to have expertise in other domains that they don't actually have. But in this case, they were right. So mea culpa. <laughs> exactly. And I, I had the exact same response you did. It's important to note that they continue to be wrong in different areas. So many of my favorite tech follows on Twitter, people who are entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley or, or venture capitalists, are also now opining on Federal Reserve policy. Uh, <laughs> and I know enough about that to know they're wrong. I try to withhold my own comments in terms of saying what's right or wrong, but I know that they have terrible opinions themselves oftentimes on, on monetary policy and uh, weak responses on what fiscal policy should do. So I think we should leave that to our friends at think tanks um, and policy experts in those areas who've really been experienced, especially the ones who had, who were proven correct in hindsight and how they were responding to the Great Recession in 2008, 2009. I think we can, we can learn a lot from that and how to respond to a crisis like this. Um, and then also, obviously, adapt because it is a, a supply side shock. and It's hard to kind of take care of the economy while so many businesses are forced to be closed down. And I think we shouldn't, we also shouldn't have hindsight bias and say that they, they definitely got this one right, the tech, the tech folks. But so kind of the outcome wasn't guaranteed. The more careful prognosticators like Balaji Srinivasan would always say, you know, this could happen. It's something you should be preparing for or thinking about. But he was always careful to couch that in, in terms of, of, of cautious language. And I think it really comes down to Tyler Cowen phrases as uh, base rate thinkers and exponential thinkers. And base rate people will say, you know, this is not the first global pandemic. We've had viruses spread worldwide at least a few times in the last decade, many, many times over the last 50 years, the average pandemic kills less than 100,000 people worldwide, you know, SARS, the swine flu. And so if you think this is similar to that in scale, the base rate, your base rate assumption should be that it won't be the end of the world, but it could be pretty bad. And then the exponential thinkers are people who just plotted out the growth rate of cases over, the, over January and February and said, you know, if this thing is doubling every two or three days, if you just extrapolate that out, for only a few months, you've, you've pretty much infected the entire world. And and the reason I think the tech industry was so quick on this is because they have experience investing. If venture capitalists, they're investing in startups with exponential growth, or if they're startup founders, they're the ones managing a company that's it's go, undergoing exponential growth. And they know how quickly that can kind of overtake you, or at least spread very rapidly. And the average American doesn't uh, often interact with exponential growth in the same way that people in tech do. And so I think that's the main reason why they were so early on this and ended up being proven mostly right in hindsight. Have you seen that now fleshed out in how the tech sector has actually responded to the crisis? How particular tech companies, because you can imagine COVID-19 has placed a kind of a particular stress on how consumers use technology as they shelter in place at home. Yeah, you've definitely seen a, a rapid change in terms of how people are using technology. And I think the tech industry, and not only were they commenting on this very early in January, they were also making, uh, they really had skin in the game in terms of making decisions that affected their businesses and their and their customers early on. And so they off, their, their workhorses were some of the first to go to comp, uh, total work from home policies. I think Google was one of the first very large corporations to move everyone who's non-essential to work from a work from home policy. and as far as customers go, these products, most you know, big tech companies have software products that are designed and built in California, but they're distributed worldwide, often via cloud computing, cloud hosting. And so these companies have been investing tens of billions of dollars in this infrastructure over the last decade or so, since AWS kind of broke open the cloud computing market. And now we have 
Microsoft Azure, we have Google Cloud Compute as well. And so these companies serve markets worldwide. They do it via the internet. And they've really seen that their customers are leaning on these tools now. So employees can go work from home. They can video conference via Zoom one day, communicate via Slack with their colleagues. So oftentimes, if you're doing kind of white collar work, you can get most of the tasks done that really 10 years ago would have been much, much harder to do without these kind of new tools. Yeah, after uh, 9-11, folks that I know who were in the sector at the time, I mean, the internet essentially shut down in the, the days right after 9-11. They just didn't have the bandwidth for folks who were suddenly demanding. I mean, they were going online to try to get the latest news. I mean, this is obviously pre-social media, so it looked a little bit different. But demand spiked, and they just didn't have the capacity to deal with that uptick in demand. And I've I've been impressed with how relatively little disruption there has been in consumer-facing applications. Like Zoom still works. Skype still works. They've managed to keep up with that peak in demand. Do you know, did that require like back-end? I mean, have the companies been doing something since January, February, predicting this surge? Have they been taking steps to address that to prepare for the incoming wave of consumer demand? Yes, they have. Based on um, the research I've been doing and, and looking into these statistics and, and plans that companies have in place, this is really the success story of cloud computing and moving from you know an on-premise hosted servers where most large companies do their own server hosting to it's all done via the cloud and these big data centers that are hosted in various parts of the country. And the key thing there is that when any one individual business, say they you know sell enterprise software, um, Zoom, for example, and I don't know exactly where Zoom is hosted, but I, let's take a guess and say it's Amazon Web Services. The key is that if there are big swings in demand, Amazon can very quickly let that surge move to the rest of their servers in, in a big data warehouse. So they can scale up and scale down very, very quickly. Servers move from being kind of a fixed cost where you have to buy servers and own them forever um, based on your peak load demands to something that uh, is really a variable cost for a business. And as consumer demand increases, those resources come online because AWS turns on new servers for you and your customers don't have any kind of interruption in service. And that's why you can see things like if you look at data from Apptopia, which tracks app downloads in the Apple Store and uh, Android App Store, Zoom went from having about 100,000 downloads per day to 350,000 downloads uh, in the last few weeks. And so, you know, we're seeing three and four X usage there, but Zoom has, as far as we can tell, no service interruptions. And same thing with cloud computing. You, see, you, know, you haven't seen any big stories about outages. And, and the one thing, I'll, one the more thing I'll mention on this topic is that it's really a peak load problem. So as demand for these services waxes and wanes throughout the day, the question is at the peak, well, is that going to overwhelm the capacity we have? And what I've, what I've seen telecom executives actually comment on is that the internet infrastructure, so broadband systems in residential areas, are actually coping pretty well because they were already designed to handle evening peak load. So when people, when everyone got home from the office, you know, turned on Netflix, started doing the web surfing, that was the peak before this crisis. And so networks already had to, to be able to cope with that. And so now that everyone's home during the day and they're streaming video, having web conferences throughout the whole day, it still hasn't exceeded much that peak load capacity in the evenings that they already were designed to be built with to handle. And so that's why you haven't seen things crash yet. Now that switch, I mean, what's the timeline for the switch to cloud-based uh, server capacity? It is like three, five years? 
In terms of how recently has it happened? I would say, I think, uh, I want to say that AWS started in 2007, 2008, but it's really only become a major phenomenon where it's kind of the default for large corporations and the majority of internet activities routed through cloud computing. I would say in the last five years, if you look at charts on this. And so 10 years ago, even though AWS was in existence, it was very, very small and wouldn't have uh, made a big factor in this crisis. But now 2020, firms are expected to spend about $250 billion on cloud services. So it's, it's a huge market. But on the subject of peak capacity, it was in the European Union. I'm trying to remember the name of the commissioner. He's the gentleman responsible for, I think, GDPR rollout, among other things. But he issued a public call asking Netflix to uh, downgrade service from HD to SD because he was worried that it would exceed capacity if everyone was streaming HD. Um, and I remember reading the statement, Netflix and, and other services responded tactfully that that they were taking steps to address this, but didn't think it was necessary. Uh, I, I don't know if you saw that, or is that a realistic concern? Is something different in the Europe, in Europe as opposed to the US? And we haven't had equivalent calls here. I'm not really sure that's a concern on our minds. Why would Why would that be a concern in Europe as opposed to the US? I did see that piece. I believe the one, at least the one I saw was in the Financial Times. Uh, and it was, it was quoting these European regulators that were basically calling on companies to, to downrate their video so that essential services wouldn't be congested at peak load times. And this really is a great case study in the potential downfalls of net neutrality, at least as implemented in Title, title II regulation, which is what the U.S. had for a few years before we reverted back under the Trump administration FCC back to Title I, because if you don't allow telecom companies to have rate caps to treat certain kinds of internet content differently than each other, um, which is the policy in Europe, then you're forced to the situation where you have you know, public officials begging Netflix to voluntarily downrate their con- downgrade their content from HD to SD because, because the telecom Technically, companies it's illegal. Can. Yeah, they're right, not right. supposed to do that. Yeah. yeah, they're not supposed to do that. And so uh, it's, it's a great example of why you know, treating certain kinds of content differently is actually could be a good problem for managing network congestion and the peak load problem. And another point is that in the US, the, the main reason why this, this Netflix problem, Netflix HD video is, isn't a problem is because oftentimes Netflix localizes the data files in each city. And so large HD video files are not being routed across hundreds or thousands of miles. It's coming from a very short distance from your local internet provider to the last mile connection to your house. And so the network can handle that much, much better. And I think I've read that Comcast and various internet service providers actually partner with Netflix and they cover some of the costs of storing this, these data files locally because it's good for them and their networks. But that kind of partnership would be frowned upon in Europe because it would be seen as favoritism, right? That, that Comcast or whatever ISP is um, playing favorites with Netflix. But it really does help manage this, this network congestion issue. I do suppose, I mean, it, the net neutrality debate is not one that lacks for hyperbole. Um, <laughs> right, but, right. Uh, so perhaps the um, anti-net neutrality folks, which is the corner I put myself in, maybe we shouldn't run the slogan, net neutrality, it kills. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <You> know, like... <laughs> too, too extreme by half, but uh, yeah, it's in the right yeah, direction. Yeah. But there is a sharp contrast between the response of the private tech sector uh, and the response of the public sector, at least in the U.S. 
Um, and you have an article out with the dispatch and for our listeners, uh, look, look for Alex uh, article in the show notes. It's called timeline, the regulations and regulators that delayed coronavirus testing. And so from the piece, you talk about these failures of testing, um, and how unnecessary many of those failures were, um, Explain some of that for our audience. What went wrong? Why are we testing so poorly in the U.S. compared to, say, South Korea? Yeah, um, I put a lot of work into this in-depth investigation because, for me, it was really the essential question of this crisis so far. If you see other countries like South Korea that have implemented widespread testing, whether it were in South Korea, which is a much smaller country than the United States in terms of population, they're doing, you know, 10 to 20x the number of daily tests that the U.S. is doing. Um, why are they so much more successful in it? And you're also seeing that those tests are allowing them to control the outbreak. And so if you can test a, a large portion of the population, you can do contact tracing, where when someone tests positive for COVID-19, then you find out who they've been in contact with and test them as well. And if you test, 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 and quarantine people who are sick, you can pretty quickly get a hold of this crisis and contain it in a way where you don't need to do what China did in the Wuhan province where they you know, locked down, I believe it was 60, 60 million people and didn't let them come in or out or, or move really beyond their apartment buildings. Really a, a draconian measure that's hard to imagine democracies implementing. And so when we look at this crisis, we have to ask what went wrong with testing in the United States. And really, if you, it, all fingers kind of point to the FDA when you look into this issue. And in early January, when China decoded the genome for the coronavirus and you know, publicly announced it and shared that data, with uh, other countries worldwide to develop their own testing protocols. The CDC very quickly finalized their own testing protocol in mid-January. German researchers also published a paper in mid-January with their own testing protocol. That became the basis for the WHO testing kits they sent out to less developed countries. Um, It's served as millions of testing kits worldwide. And at that point in time, the FDA was kind of at a crossroads. So they said, you know, the CDC has announced that they have a a testing protocol. On January 31st, the Department of Health and Human Services announced a national public health emergency. And once a public health emergency is announced, the government needs to decide which testing protocols are valid, which what public labs, you know, state, county, hospital labs, what are they allowed to do on their own or are they not allowed to do? And the crucial mistake that the FDA made was in on February 4th, they only allowed the CDC testing protocol to be validated, to receive what's known as an emergency use authorization. And that forced every other public or private lab in the country that was trying to create their own testing kit, um, they were forced to pause that development and seek the similar approval. Uh, the government did not grant anyone else approval for almost a month. And during that month, uh, they were reassuring everyone and telling labs and private companies that they had things under control and that their testing protocol would work. And it failed spectacularly. And so uh, that's the reason that we've had fallen so far behind other countries is because for six weeks from the end of January until mid-March, the CDC testing kits that they mailed out, it was about 200,000 testing kits to different partners across the country. Those testing kits failed and were not able to be validated once they were in the field. And so they were never used. And it's too little too late, but fortunately, the problem is being fixed. In the last week, the FDA granted all labs and commercial manufacturers an exemption saying you don't need to apply. You no longer need to apply for an emergency use authorization if you're developing a testing kit. Just proceed going forward and we'll retroactively grant you authorization if, if your testing kit is validated. Um, but, but go ahead. And so 
now we're seeing the very large uh, manufacturers get in the game. So Roche was granted their own emergency use authorization in the last week. So was Thermo Fisher. So was Abbott Labs. And these are healthcare giants that are worth hundreds of billions of dollars. They have capacity. They have um, high throughput automated machines that can run these tests, thousands of tests per day, instead of the public health labs like the CDC that were doing all these tests manually. And so the problem will be fixed soon, but it's just a shame that it took six weeks of dithering and mistakes before um, they made the right call on regulation. As I was reading about the South Korea's success on the same front, because my understanding is that date in January where the first U.S. patient is diagnosed is the same as in South Korea, that basically we had we had the same or very similar starting point, but that in South Korea, their their version of the FDA immediately, essentially immediately said, look, go ahead and get started and, and check back with us in a week and we'll we'll make what you do essentially legal <laughs> retroactively. Yeah. But they it, it took us six weeks to get to that same point, give or take six, seven weeks. Is that I mean, is that an accurate uh, depiction of what happened in South Korea? Or is there something else that they what's I mean, because they they have not had to do these draconian measures, right? They're not mass sheltering in place. Their economy doesn't appear like it's going to take the same kind of hit it did in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely right. I think uh, there's a great Reuters investigation that in particular talked about what South Korea has been doing. And they really emphasized that because East Asia was hit much harder by the SARS outbreak and the MERS outbreak, that they have kind of developed these protocols much better than the U.S. has to kind of have uh, exercised those muscles over time and have plans in place where U.S. really should have had them. But we did not prepare in the same way because we haven't borne the brunt of these kind of outbreaks in the last in the last decade or two. And I think in the U.S., we're, it's almost kind of the downside of having such a highly respected and trusted institution, the CDC, where once the CDC said on January 21st, they announced that they detected the first case in the United States. Uh, they said they used their own testing protocol to validate that. And therefore, you know, they were ready to go in terms of testing nationwide. And then on February 4th, when the FDA gave exclusive emergency use authorization to the CDC, kind of everybody sat back and said, oh, the CDC's got this. Like, they're, they're going to handle this. And you also, like, I was very frustrated. Even today, I saw uh, an article talking about with comments from Dr. Fauci, who's kind of been the face of the coronavirus task response, very widely respected. He was he claimed today that no one's to blame. Don't blame the FDA. Don't blame Trump. This was a technical error that nobody could have foreseen. And, you know, accidents happen. And he's both right in the narrow sense and wrong, completely wrong in the broad sense. Like, yes, there was a technical error with the testing kit when it was um, mailed out to labs across the country. But the thing is, in any kind of crisis, mistakes are always going to happen. You don't know which mistakes are going to happen um, and, and errors are going to occur, but they're going to occur. And so what you want to do is you want to have a system and plans in place that are resilient to, to many different kinds of mistakes, both small and large, occurring. And in, in the U.S.'s case, we didn't have we had a very brittle response. Our response was we're going to create a single point of failure with the CDC because we respect them a lot and trust that they, they can do no wrong. And we're going to put all of our eggs in that one basket and hope it works out. And when that just blew up, we had really no fallback plan. We had to basically lose six weeks during that time period when they were trying to fix the problem with the CDC testing kit. And so it's really a strategy error that is predictable. We didn't know that a particular reagent would fail, but you should be able to expect ahead of time that something will go wrong. And you want to have kind of a decentralized, distributed approach that can handle those kind of errors.
let's say we're centralizing all the power in the hands of Alex Stapp. Uh, how <laughs> would you reform as czar of the, the combined CDC, FDA? What would you reform going forward in light of what we learned from the testing failures? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. You can and you can kind of centralize all the power in my hands, so then I can proceed to very quickly give it away. Uh, and I think, <laughs> there I think, you go. Hey, that's good. Yeah, the way I would give it away is actually I do think government decisions in mid March, um, so just this week, have been the right ones. So they, those were just the decisions that need to be made six weeks ago. And so in particular, I'm, I'm referencing that Department of Health and Human Services waived various privacy provisions of HIPAA um, and what's known as the Common Rule, which are rules around how you should are you required to treat human research subjects? And the reason you, that you don't want to you know, necessarily have a 100% inviolable um, loyalty to privacy in a scenario like this is because one, there was a situation in Seattle where there was an ongoing flu study in the region um, that they just do every year to monitor um, you know, the seasonal flu. So they had thousands of, of testing samples of Seattle residents uh, already in, in a research lab there who had shown symptoms um, that suggested it might be something different than the traditional flu. And when researchers started hearing about the coronavirus outbreak um, worldwide, they said, hey, we should be testing these these samples to see if there's coronavirus in, C- in Seattle, especially when um, the first case was in the state of Washington. And uh, the FDA quickly intervened and said, no, you're not allowed to do this. Uh, the test subjects, the humans as a part of this flu study, did not consent to having this tested for uh, <laughs> COVID-19. Uh, so you need to have, get affirmative consent from them. You need to stop doing this right now. And that, that could have been, a, they, they ended up testing them later on um, once they got certain exemptions, um, but it was very much delayed. And they ended up finding, uh, I think it was a few, at least a few dozen people in the region who had um, the coronavirus and they needed to then have, you know, have their family members get tested. And that could have been very vital information to have early on. And the idea that we need to respect some kind of affirmative consent in an outbreak that affects all of us, right? This is a classic example where there are trade-offs between uh, values like individual privacy and public health. And in the middle of an exponentially growing disease like COVID-19, we really need to lean away from things like you know HIPAA privacy protections and that sort of thing. And then the second decision that, that they made in the middle of March that they should have made on January 31st when public health emergency was declared uh, is they should have exempted all uh, public health labs and private testing manufacturers from needing to receive an emergency use author- authorization. Um, the new policy is if you're developing something, go ahead, validate it internally. After this is over, we'll, at least in a few weeks or months, we'll you know, come to your company or your lab and, and make sure that we'll give you retroactive authorization, but please proceed forthwith. This is an emergency, you know, damn the torpedoes. And that should have happened in late January. And so what we could do going forward if I had all the power or we wanted to make a plan for the future is there should be some kind of automatic trigger where like the moment you declare a national public health emergency, um, these are the kind of plans that just happen. You don't need to wait six weeks for things to completely fall apart before you do them. There is an irony that like the emergency use authorization it only kicks in, my understanding is from your piece, once an emergency declaration is made. It's intended to promote public safety and privacy, but it's actually done the opposite. I mean, so rather than the EUA, it should do the exact inverse once an emergency declaration is declared or, or, or something like we should lower the regulatory barrier, not raise it as a response to an emergency. Yeah, that's definitely what I think the right approach is. And really, there are kind of flimsy defenses that when I was researching my article, uh, you come across people who are currently 
or former employee, current employees or former employees of the FDA or CDC who say, you know, uh, a faulty test is worse than no test because in a public health crisis um, during an, out, an outbreak of a new virus, uh, you need to have perfect information. Otherwise, we're going to be led astray and, and it'll make, make the crisis worse. And I think that's actually just completely wrong in terms of how you weigh the costs and benefits and do risk analysis in a crisis like this. Maybe that's my bias as an economist and not an epidemiologist, but an imperfect test actually is very useful, especially when there's a difference between false positives and false negatives. So in this case, say, say a test is right 98% of the time, that's imperfect. And the CDC would say that that test shouldn't be approved in an emergency. But if it's you know spitting out 2% false positives, those are 2% of people who are actually healthy and will have to endure a two-week quarantine by themselves, right? Um, so that's actually not the worst case. A test that had a very high false negative rate, no, that'd be a pro- that would be a problem. Um, because then sick people would be being sent out to the general population. But based on the reporting I've seen, uh, the reason the CDC testing kits failed in February that they sent out, it wasn't because they weren't accurately identifying COVID-19. It's because they were giving false positives for other viruses. So the, C- so the CDC tried to create a more complex and complicated testing kit because they thought they'd be fancy uh, and make it more uh, <laughs> able to find more viruses. And so it correctly identified in, in the field when it was distributed, it correctly identified the coronavirus, but it was giving on just like they're testing laboratory laboratory grade water, right? So there's nothing in this water. It's, it's perfectly clean, but it's giving false positives for other viruses. That's a problem. But in terms of like, should you stop testing at that point? If that's the only problem and it is correctly giving you true positives for the coronavirus, I think you should go forward. Uh, but a public health person might disagree or an economist sees the, sees the trade-offs a different way. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm not a mathematician, but it turns out that if your choice, if if you got one option, the other option is doing nothing, 98% is 98% higher than 0%, right? So if your testing is no testing exactly. versus 98%, I don't know. I, I, I'm not, I, like I said, I'm not a theoretical mathematician, but that seems pretty straightforward to me. Well, it, it does sound like right. in during this rollout, during the testing rollout, there were a number of unnecessary bottlenecks created. Like there was the bottleneck over who's allowed to develop a test, only the CDC. There's a bottleneck around which labs are allowed to test the result, the tests that do come back. And my understanding was that that was also limited, that only a handful, a relative handful of laboratories were allowed to test. And they had to do so only using like manual testing, not automatic testing. Could you explain that a little more for us? Yeah, yeah. So in addition to, you know, this emergency use authorization uh, regulatory barrier that labs were facing, even when the FDA granted the first exemption from that, that was on February 29th, uh, where, the C- where the FDA said, okay, you don't need to come get approval from us ahead of time to develop these things internally uh, at, at your lab. You can go ahead and do that. They only limited that exemption to what are known as labs that are certified to perform high complexity testing consistent with requirements under the Clinical Lab Improvement Amendments, or CLIA. And these these requirements are very onerous. Uh, only a small percentage of labs meet them. Uh, one researcher estimated that 5,000 labs across the country meet these standards, which sounds like a lot, but then when you realize that we actually have 250,000 labs uh, across the country, it's, it's a very small percentage. And so, again, if you're thinking about like risk management in a, in a crisis, Again, risk management in a crisis versus risk management in, in ordinary times are very different things where days and hours matter greatly uh, in a crisis. This is a situation where probably what you want to do is you want to authorize, authorize all labs 
that believe they're capable of doing these tests to go ahead and do them uh, and let, you know, the kind of the local uh, authorities and decision makers figure this out. And that's what this the FDA ended up doing uh, this week when they expanded the exemption to all public and private labs uh, in, in going forward. And that was a big boon. It was the right decision. Again, six weeks too late. But it shows you that just the earlier you act, the better results you're going to get responding to this. And the, and the more capacity you bring online, the better results you're going to get. So this is how you get to a situation where, I mean, because we have laboratories. I mean, when you talk about 250,000 laboratories, every, I assume every pharmacy has one, like every local CVS or Walgreens has some sort of laboratory testing, obviously not the highly complex one that was only initially approved. Um, but this is how you end up at drive-through testing. I mean, that, that phrase is thrown around a lot. That's what they've been doing in South Korea. Is that because you can basically drive up to the parking lot of your Walgreens or your CVS, have a test, and in theory, within a number of hours or days, have results? Yeah, yeah. They're actually, the newest tests are moving from down to just a few hours. And the hours versus days statistic is really the difference between where the test is being done and, and how it's being done. And so again, in, in January and early February, all tests were being collected in the field and then shipped to CDC headquarters in Atlanta, where they were manually testing them, like, like doing a little literally bench bench lab science. Wow. <laughs> That's super labor intensive. Yeah. Yeah. And so what we've seen in South Korea and other countries that have moved more quickly on this and they like you said, implemented drive through testing, they've got it down to four hours or less. And the key difference here is in addition to having them localized and doing the tests on site is you also want to move from manual testing to automated testing. And so that's what we're seeing now in the U.S. this week with the giant national lab chains like LabCorp and Quest. Um, they're going to be running thousands of tests per day on each machine. And then you, know, you get these machines from Abbott Labs um, or Roche or Thermo Fisher. And these companies, they're running automated tests. And so those take longer to develop. So I'm not saying that those could have been online um, you know, in the early weeks of February right after there was a national emergency declared, you really want to do it in two stages where once a national public health emergency was declared on January 31st, for the next, I don't know, two to three weeks, you should have had all public health labs at the local, county, and state and federal levels um, doing manual testing and at hospital labs, et cetera. So that all that capacity could have come online. That's something that would let us get at least, you know, a few like 10, 20, 30,000 tests per day nationwide really give us visibility and surveillance of what's going on. And then having given the large commercial manufacturers that can do these highly automated tests, having given them permission on January 31st, they would have been able to come, come online late February, maybe early March with these uh, tests that can do hundreds of thousands or millions of tests per day. And so that's, that's really the, the big players in the game. And it's a two-stage process that all of it was slowed down based on the FDA's decisions to only give the CDC uh, emergency use authorization. So if you had said, okay, there's going to be a big crisis that is adjacent to the tech sector, and you had told me that a few months ago, I would have assumed it was going to be somehow related to the so-called tech lash, the backlash against big tech, you know, growing public discomfort with the level of uh, of uh, the intrusiveness of tech companies and violations of privacy and, and knowledge about uh, you know users lives and use of that to make money and profit etc um, you've written uh, some in the past about how the tech lash is probably 
was always overrated that consumers basically didn't follow their opinion of of big tech was a lot higher than that than the opinion of uh, DC area elites. But that entire conversation feels really antiquated right now. Um, do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. I think it does feel really, really out of date at the moment, uh, especially when people are relying on. So we've, we've mentioned a lot of different tech services that people are find really valuable at this moment in time. But we can also mention things like e-commerce, right? I believe Amazon announced they're hiring 100,000 new workers. They're raising wages by $2 an hour uh, and implementing paid sick leave for their warehouse workers to kind of just keep operations going. Uh, they're, they're also prioritizing critical medical supplies in terms of shipping those first uh, to consumers and businesses across the country. And so really moving from brick and mortar retail to e-commerce is something that, again, will help us facil- help facilitate social distancing and help people reduce contact with others. Uh, during the crisis. And so Amazon is in particular is a company that was extremely highly rated among the public prior to this crisis. So when different groups survey American Americans and ask, do you approve or disapprove this company? Or do you trust or distrust this company? Amazon regularly gets, you know, 90% approval, um, or 90% of people saying they, they trust this company. And then when you ask them their opinion of, you know, of Congress, or uh, the media, <laughs> you get numbers in the teens, um, or the 20s, right? And so there's a huge gap there. And I think the tech lash kind of, it's really a fallacy of composition where there has been some backlash against particular companies, uh, Facebook in particular. If you look at the survey data over time, Facebook used to be like three or four years ago even, used to be very, very popular, similar to Google, Amazon, Apple. But they have had uh, a significant backlash since the 2016 election. Many people blaming them for uh, the election of Donald Trump or in Europe for, for Brexit, you know, misinformation, fake news, that sort of stuff. And whether you think those criticisms are valid or not, uh, people are upset with them in particular. But if you look at the tech industry more broadly, and especially the other tech giants, uh, they're all still extremely popular. And so in this moment in time, especially when Google, you know, the government is turning to Google to create a web, a national website where people can check their symptoms and receive information about where to go get treatment or testing. Uh, that shows you that they really are an institution that people view as effective and reliable in a crisis, and it's probably going to blunt some of the fervor in Congress to investigate or go after these companies. Obviously, our behavior has changed significantly in, in response to the pandemic, working from home, consumption patterns are changing. I mean, even, heck, even movie distribution has changed drastically. Uh, new Films that normally would be required to be released in movie theaters are being uh, released directly to consumers. So we're seeing all these changes uh, to consumption and to distribution. Which of those do you think will stick? And how do you think um, consumer behavioral consumer behavior will permanently change as a result of of, uh, of this crisis? One of the things I think will definitely stick is uh, I think you'll see an acceleration in trends towards e-commerce. So right now in the U.S., about 15% of all retail sales are e-commerce. Uh, they were projected to grow to about 18% next year, but I could see that trend accelerating to something on the order of like 20 to 21%. And you just see, you can see a, a big uptick in that because once people realize that, oh, hey, I can buy even more of the goods and services that I thought I could from Amazon or you know walmart.com, things like that, I think it'll be hard for people to go back from the convenience of you know same-day shipping or two, free two-day shipping as they're they're shopping for different products and services. And as far as entertainment, 
we could see, you know, quite a few movie theaters go bankrupt from this crisis if there's not subsidies or bailouts from the government. And so it's it'd be hard to imagine that should any large movie chains go bankrupt, that people would be you know looking to make new ones following the crisis. Probably you just be a you just see a reduced sector um, and more activity online. And really, we're just seeing an abundance of content creation online. So it wouldn't be necessarily the largest loss for consumers. Last year, there were 500 uh, original scripted TV series um, across all um, entertainment channels. Um, so online and cable TV and broadcast TV. And so we're kind of we're drowning in content. Um, people are enjoying uh, consuming it uh, online or via streaming. And so I think those kind of trends will only accelerate uh, given people spending many more hours at home. I guess I would just add that as I've been tracking the crisis and trying to see what trends are emerging, I've been following uh, biotech and telemedicine in particular. And so I think right now in the broader stock market, the market is down about 30% from its peak in February. Uh, so it's like obviously a huge crash in such a short period of time, but a few stocks in particular are up over that same period of time. So Gilead Sciences and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals are up and, you know, I'm happy. I guess I'm happy for their shareholders, but that's really irrelevant to the point that the reason they're up is that those companies have promising vaccines or treatments for um, coronavirus. And so I really hope they do well. It's a healthy market signal to others, entrepreneurs and, and biotech startups that this is you know a fruitful area to research and invest in. Um, and then in terms of telemedicine, we there's a big danger that if you you're sick or you think you might be sick, um, people people going flooding into hospitals or doctor's offices and then infecting people in those areas. And so doing at least initial screening via telemedicine is really important. And so another company's stock that's been doing really well is Teladoc um, over the same period. And so, again, I think I've seen venture capitalists on Twitter comment that they're looking to invest very heavily in these kind of businesses that are either biotech related or enable, you know, telemedicine or remote you know, work from home or distance learning. And so I'm really excited to see which new startups get built. Um, to address these problems and make people's lives better. Now, come, when it comes to telemedicine, my understanding is that, I mean, the technology is not meaningfully different from Zoom or Skype or any of a number of teleconferencing services. Um, so the barrier to telemedicine, at least as my understanding, has not been technological for quite some time. It's been regulatory, um, and, you know, related to the insurance industry and government regulation. Um is that your take on on what's been delaying telemedicine? Do you think there's a chance of that changing? Yeah, I, that's my take as well. And I think what we're seeing now is there's been a, kind of a meme going around that uh, there are no libertarians in a pandemic <laughs> because I think people are saying that you know we so we, we need universal health insurance. This is why we need you know paid sick leave, paid family leave. We need to expand unemployment insurance, and those are usually policies um, you attribute to center left or far left far left individuals. I think what we're also seeing, so that's true that people are asking for those things and there's um, valid reasons for wanting to pass them and implement them. What we're also seeing is that a rollback of regulations across many sectors, and that includes obviously healthcare, where they're reducing occupational licensing, um, where temporarily doctors will be able to practice, doctors and nurses will be able to practice across state lines without needing to get new occupational licenses in each jurisdiction. Uh, in, in addition, we're also seeing regulations waived that prevent telemedicine from operating where doctors are allowed to do uh, screenings or appointments uh, via video conferencing. And that should help that sector as well. And then the second, last point on that, on 
what's been holding back uh, telemedicine or why is it different than, than Zoom. Uh, I believe I've also read that uh, reimbursement rates are different for uh, these kind of remote visits. And so they're much lower, which obviously is a huge disincentive for doctors to do them or invest in setting up the infrastructure um, to reach, reach patients that way. And so if we could do some kind of balancing um, or uh, equaling, equalizing of those, of those rates, that could help accelerate this trend a lot as well. I hope Alex's comments give you at least a partial sense of just how the social and technological changes that have happened as a result of COVID-19 might persist long after the virus is neutralized. For me, it has certainly thrown into high relief just how ludicrous many regulatory barriers are. Rules that are merely ill-advised in ordinary times can be truly disastrous during a crisis, as we saw with the abject failure of the FDA's initial testing regime. Also note that the crisis has belied the neo-Luddite critics of the tech industry, people like U.S. Senator Josh Hawley, who not that long ago opined that the days of meaningful technological innovation were long past us. Au contraire, my Missouri frere. Tech has allowed isolated people to connect online. Think of all the concerts that your Facebook friends have performed to cheer each other up in the last couple weeks. Is provided at least some substitute for classroom education for children across the country. Teleconferencing has prevented many workplaces from screeching to a complete standstill. It slowed the spread of contagion and mitigated the implosion of the restaurant industry by making it more frictionless to order and receive takeout food. In these ways, and a hundred more like them, the tech sector has lessened the blow of COVID-19. And it is tech which will ultimately be responsible for discovering a cure. And on that hopeful note, and with an extra dash of meaning this time, let me say, until next week, be well.